3rd century AD, Philostratus said, for the wise man, Greece is everywhere. That's certainly been true in the career of Victor Davis Hanson, Emeritus Professor of Classics at California State University at Fresno, and the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow in Classics and Military History at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and author of many books, the latest of which is The Dying Citizen. Victor, Thucydides boasted in his History of the Peloponnesian War that it was not an essay which is to win the applause of the moment, but as a possession for all time. And you clearly agree with him, calling it uh, an intense, riveting and timeless story of strong and weak men, of heroes and scoundrels and innocents too, all caught in a fateful circumstance of revolution, plague and war that always strip away the veneer of culture and show us for what we really are. How does he do that? And who are we really? A very good question, Andrew. And that, that, uh, that very famous phrase, tema es to a, a, a possession for all time, is, is um, made people curious for the last 2,500 years. But we know the war lasted 27 and a half years. And we know from other sources that not all of the events that took place in the war are recorded by Thucydides, who was a personal observer, at least uh, for, for a large part, both as an Athenian commander and as an exiled outsider. And we know, in addition, that some of the things that he stresses or emphasizes or fixates were not the most important events in the war. So then that raises the obvious question to, and answer to yours. Why does he give us such a long, long... We can understand the plague, but why such a long mention of cities that are annihilated like Scione or Tyrone or Plataea, the siege of Plataea, or uh, the dialogue, the debate at Milos, and, uh, or the stasis at Corsaira? And what apparently he's trying to do is he is true to the narrative of trying to give an inclusive view of the war, but he sees certain things of the plague at Athens, what a plague can do, and we, we can relate to that during our own plague today, or a revolution or civil disunion that's Corsair. We can relate to that too, given what's going on in the United States, or a complete annihilation. And in those cases, he's saying to us that civilization is no protectorate against human nature. And uh, if that is that human nature is a veneer, uh, excuse me, it's the essence, and civilization is the thin veneer. When it scrapes off, then people throw um, the bodies of others off funeral pyres so they can put their own dead on them, as it happened at Athens. Our brothers kill brothers, our fathers kill sons at Corsaira. Or at Milos, the Athenians, supposedly the exemplars of democratic humanity, tell the Milians, this is just the way it is. We inherited this code of brutality, and if you don't accept it, uh, and realize that you're going to be annihilated, then we can't really help you. So he, he's part philosopher and part historian. We're going to go into uh, several of those later, but can we concentrate on on democracy and the concepts of democracy, which were destroyed in a sense in Athens in 404 uh, BC, when uh, the Spartan admiral Lysander pulled down the long walls of Athens yes. uh, to the sound of pipers. Um, yet, although writers and thinkers such as Plato and Xenophon and others uh, preferred the Spartan to the Athenian constitution, democracy somehow. Um, survived as a concept and, of course, is, uh, is a strong one in the present day. How was, it, how was it, how important was it that that brief flowering in 5th century BC Athens um, 
helped its re-emergence. I mean, could we have had democracy today if there were no such thing as democracy in Periclean Athens? I don't think so. I think the way to look at Athens is that although it had a lot of Jacobin tendencies, because what 51% of the people who voted, the first 7,000 that got inside the ecclesia voted, that was the law. There were no constitutional checks and balances. But it served as sort of a radical fuel or uh, in, um, accelerant to constitutional government. So there was a tendency at Sparta and Crete, the ideal separation of powers, um, did not include, in many cases, 50% of the resident population. In Athens, because there was no property qualification by the late 5th century, everybody participated who was a free male. And the result was that its success, the dynamism of the Athenian Empire, whether we look at the Acropolis or the great tragedians or the size of the population, that tended to make people think whatever this thing is, it's volatile, it's dangerous, it will execute Socrates, it'll annihilate the millions of the Middleanians. It does have a, a certain appeal and inclusiveness. And so that stays. So everybody worked in the context of how can we harness that, but not avoid its excesses. And they came up at Sparta in response or contemporaneously with, you know, two and that would be two consuls in Rome and a the ephors, which will be the tribunate or the uh, judicial branch in Rome or the gerousia that would become the Senate or the, tri uh, the assembly of all citizens, which would become the tribal assembly. So the model that we in the West found the most successful was the Roman model that went on in the Enlightenment under the refinements can, of people like Montesquieu, etc. But the idea that we have plebiscites and referenda and all of that comes from Athens. And it's always, and we're seeing that tension, Andrew, play out today in the United States when you look at the left today wants to get rid of the filibuster, the electoral college, a nine-person Supreme Court. And that's the Athenian urge to at least let 51% of the people without any checks and balances decide what we, they want. Um, and Plato's ideal republic wasn't a democracy. It was more sort of government by a board of virtuous elders, yes. wasn't it? And, they, yes. and you have the, many thinkers of the ancient world thought that a democracy was too often the rule of the mob, the 51%. But some people, uh, Frederick Raphael, uh, for example, argue that Athens was the ideal place for Plato to found his uh, academy because individuality and argument and comedy were at a premium there, despite Aristophanes' satire of Plato in the cloud. Were democracy and freedom of speech intimately linked in the ancient world? I mean, can you for very long have one without the other? I don't think so. And, um, there was this idea, isonomia, isogoria, the idea that a person had the freedom to get up in front of the assembly and say whatever they please. That was unique, really, to Athens. And we should also remember there's 1,500 city-states, and we don't hear about all of the democracies at Mantinea and other places, but there was a gradation between the Athenian left extreme and the Spartan right wing. But within those parameters, there were constitutional states that had property qualifications where you could speak in the assembly. But you, you touch on a really good point about the philosophers. I would go even further and say that I can't think of a major philosopher, uh, whether it's Aristotle or Plato or philosophical uh, thinkers that worked in other genres like Thucydides, uh, Herodotus, that were entirely supportive of Athenian democracy. And yet, 
they all seem to, whether it's Aristotle, who was a, a resident alien, come to Athens and the philosophical schools, whether it's the Academy or the Lyceum or the Garden of Epicurus or the Stoa, they all are centered at Athens. So they're very critical of the so-called mob. I think Plato at one point said they won't be happy until the dogs and the donkeys vote. But they found that the larger dynamism of that democratic culture was something that favored what they were doing. And occasionally it can throw up a genius, can't it, in the, in the yes. shape, obviously, of, uh, of Pericles. And in um, Robert Strassler's brilliant 1996 edition of the landmark Thucydides that you, uh, that you contributed to, you described the funeral oration as majestic. Um, tell us about that and, um, and whether you think it has anything to tell us today. It was very influential. So in the second year of the war, the dead, there was a tradition at Athens that the leader, the first citizen of the head of the archons, and that was Pericles. And he, although it was a democracy, Thucydides, he said the democracy worked because it really wasn't a democracy, that his it was sort of Churchillian or FDR magnetism gave him power year after year. Um, moral, spiritual, intellectual power to, to run the country in a way that that was not anti-democratic, but it was uh, a a democracy led by a first citizen. And in these speeches, and we only have one, we had one supposedly every year, but in the second year, he has juxtaposed this speech, uh, this majestic description of what Athens is, right next to the plague. So he gets done with the, the speech, and then the plague rolls out. And you think, well, if it's so majestic, what happened? People are acting like barbarians. So that's Thucydides, and he always does that. But what he's trying to do in, in the speech is not just commemorate the dead, but explain why Athens is a free society and Sparta is not. It's, it's directly aimed at Sparta, the antithesis. And then second, uh, why people in democratic society will go off to far places and die for the idea of Athens. And then third, it's the classical argument that whatever damage is done by a free society, and I, you're transparent, your secrets can be stolen, you can have agents, you more than gain um, by the process of uh, encouraging people to be free and to speak their ideas. And so uh, a lot of the the strategies of that speech were incorporated later on when he says, you know, the first like, um, sort of traitoretio, he says, uh, you know, I can't really do justice to this. Uh, it should, your assessment of Athens should not hinge, your assessment of the dead should not hinge on my ability to speak. That was exactly what Lincoln did in the Gettysburg Address. And Lincoln's Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address is the same type of military oration over the dead, very shorter, but it's an encapsulation of what the American experience was like. And he, he emulated Pericles. And a lot of people have since. Well, I was, was about it? to come on onto that. Yeah. There are, um, and there are also, of course, 141 speeches in yes. um, Thucydides' uh, history. So, and when you write of the sophistic and rhetorical movements that were spawned by the bounty of this Athenian century, do you think it's possible to trace elements? I mean, you've already just done it with the Gettysburg Address, but um, trace elements of uh, ancient oratorical devices, as opposed to not what they're saying, but the way they say. Yes, absolutely. In in in, in modern uh, political oratory. Yes, and so a couple of things. One of them is um, 
they, they're brilliant in what we call pray to radio. I won't mention this about my opponent. Or I won't mention this about Sparta. And then you go ahead and mention it. Or <laughs> yeah, like they, Chappaquiddick, didn't, yes. uh, didn't uh, somebody, uh, Jimmy Carter, make a speech about yes. not mentioning yes. Chappaquiddick to when yes, Ted exactly. Kennedy was standing against yeah. him? Absolutely super. That was pure, yeah. um, that was pure ancient Greece. It would be as if I said, I don't want to mention Hunter Biden, and I won't mention Hunter Biden, and then mention him <laughs> uh, when praising Joe Biden. But, and then the other, uh, another trait that's, that's very common, they do a, a, a gentle, well, they, Unlike us who believe that stereotyping is racist or unfair or culturally um, exclusionist or something, in that famous series of speeches at the end of book one, they talk about national character and the Spartans, you are slow to rile, you are suspicious. The Athenians, when they grab something, they're not they're disappointed that they didn't grab more. When you grab something, you're worried that you grab too much. So they have this tendency throughout to um, to express uh, what's going on in 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 this history is the collective impulses that which are predictable for a particular people, and that's something that was very influential national character until recently. At least it was. It's, it's very. It was very common. The other thing that um, he does is that he has a tendency to put a speech, a rhetorical speech, and you don't know whether it's going to be effective or not in in terms of policy. But it's very effective in winning over a majority support. But then, as I said earlier, he juxtaposed something that makes you think that it was a, a disaster. So I'll give you another example besides the play when Pericles is explaining all of these things and he has earlier about the strategy to come into the walls. And then you, you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, going into the walls caused the plague. And he put the plague right after this monumental speech. Same thing on the decision to go to Sicily, a person, you know, there's Alcibiades and then there's the sober and judicious speeches of Nicias and Nicias has the better argument, but Alcibiades basically is bombastic. You know, we can't mark out where we're going to stop, and we can do this, and it just overreach, and it persuades everybody. And then almost immediately, you have books six and seven, which is a chronicle of the horrendous disaster of the Sicilian Alcibiadean project. So you you get the impression he thinks that one of the weaknesses of democracy is the ability of um, a speaker to persuade people to do something with majority support that's disastrous. And he's very, very explicit about in Mytilene when Diodotus uh, has an idea, don't, don't execute the Mytileneans. And then uh, Leon says, you know, he gives a speech, it's, it's terrifying, and it wins. And then they they decide, wow, that was a bad idea. We voted to execute him. Now we better get another trireme roll all night and contradict what we voted yesterday because of Cleon. And so there's a, there's a, he's, a, he's very worried that clever speakers or even good men that speak well can result in disastrous policy for the people. And modern academia is obsessed, isn't it, with the objective versus the subjective um, truths. And the way that the speeches in Thucydides seem to reflect what uh, was actually said and others what Thucydides thought ought to have been said speaks to that uh, dichotomy, doesn't it? It does. And remember that just a few years, not as much as we used to think, but Herodotus has speeches in his history of the Persian War, and he's only writing perhaps 10 to 20 years 
or at most earlier than Thucydides. So it was a technique in ancient historiography that any historian could put words into the mouth if they thought that there was a speech given and if they thought the circumstances would justify a rendition of that speech, even though they didn't hear it, because they had no, you know, paper and pencil and journalistic recording. However, what makes his speeches different is, is the number of them, 141. And more importantly, he deliberately confuses uh, students of Thucydides for the next 2,500 years when he says, I tried to write down as much as I could by lengthy investigation of what was said, or I put words into the mouth of people who, uh, who, which the circumstances probably demanded that they say, and that's contradictory. One is an argument that it's not subjective, subjective that it actually happened, and he took great pains. And then the other argument that he also makes is sometimes it's just what I think they should have said. And then we have to find tools as historians to find out when a speech is subjective or actual. And and we do have some. And and one of them is where there are a lot of people around, like a funeral oration. They would say, that didn't happen. I was there. You made that up, Thucydides, when they heard him, somebody recite Thucydides. Or is it have a level of vocabulary, um, grammar and syntax that you don't think the popular audience would follow? For example, there are uh, grammatical uh, examples or syntactical complexities in the funeral oration that would be analogous for, let's say, a colonial argu- uh, audience around 1786 and a new that has become American, listening to somebody recite the Federalist Papers. And I don't think they could follow that. And He's also been criticised, hasn't he, for making his leading figures too black uh, and white. The uh, Pericles, good, Cleon, bad, Brasidas and Glylippus, good, Alcibiades and Nicias, you mentioned earlier, bad. Uh, Is that a fair criticism of him? I think it is quite, because he has a unique ability to show you that certain people that he does not like are dynamic. He obviously does not like Cleon puts into the words, uh, into the mouth of Cleon, um, an argument that is so more so much more sophisticated than Diodotus that it is much more persuasive. Or to give example, when, when there's a question of going down to the Peloponnese and defeating Sparta as bacteria and pylos, uh, he says that Cleon just hammers everybody and hammers Nicias and hammers everybody. You don't do this. You don't do that. And then they vote to say, well, if you're so smart, you go down. And then he adds this acerbic aside. And people were actually thinking that two good things could happen. He'd either win or he'd get killed. Either one was acceptable. (laughs) But but the fact is, he's very fair. And he shows you how Cleon's uh, dash and his audacity win win the day. And so uh, Nicias... It's a complete incompetent, and he and he's very careful in chronicling whether he had a kidney stone or not, how he destroys the expedition to Sicily. But then when he dies, he says that there was no man that was lived a better life than Nicias. And so that raises an even more difficult question about the layers of composition, because at times he will give you a summary or an opinion a culminating opinion that's not justified by the previous evidence that he's adduced. And that 
and I wrote a thesis on agricultural devastation because he will say it. So they destroyed all the agriculture of Attica. And yet he will show you that there were areas that they didn't destroy or that all. Of, and that has led to this question of composition and methodology. In other words, that he was writing uh, the history as an observer and then at particular points he summarized and at some points he found out that his summary had changed because the conditions of the war Athens a good example is that it's supposed to be a tragedy that Athens is going to be destroyed and at the end of the war they're done the democracy and he may have lived all the way till 395 even though the history ends in 411 nobody can figure that out because he did not die in 411 and so and one of the books sig- ends one of the books ends in mid sentence doesn't it yes it does um, it does in, the, in in book 8 so the eight. question is maybe he got frustrated as he had this huge amounts of notes and dispatches and he was forming his history leading to this tragedy that Athens would, was destroyed itself then he looks all of a sudden around the 390s and all of a sudden it's resurgent and now it's more or less uh, working with Sparta in some cases against Thebes and they, he thinks well wait a minute maybe he got frustrated because he apparently didn't just die in mid-sentence in 411 as the 19th century had thought we found it uh, epigraphical evidence of people referred to uh, in the history that we know were alive at certain times so we know that he, he, he we know from a variety I think of, of good conjectures he lived into the 390. You've written about the inevitable tension in 5th century Athens between democracy at home and imperialism abroad. Can you tell us a bit about that? You mentioned the Melian Dialogue just uh, then, and maybe in the context of the Melian Dialogue. Um, talk about what you've called the Athenians' butchery of the hapless Melians and yes. and the extent to which, um, this is a, obviously a might is right debate, the extent to which um, Thucydides uh, is on one side or the other of that. Well, they, they had, there was this Cold War. So from 431 to 421, there was the, what we call the Archidamian War with certain auxiliary theaters. And then they had the Peace of Nicias, roughly from 421 to the expedition to Sicily in, in um, 415. But in that period, it was a Cold War. So each side is trying to gain advantage without breaking the peace, the Battle of Mantinea in 418. But one of them is the Athenians decide they've got to clean up their backyard in the Aegean. And as a sea power, they can do it. So they go into certain places and say, you're either with us or against us. And no more neutrality. And they go to the island of Milos, which was a Doric colony. And they say to the Melians, it's time to quit double game with us. We know what you're doing. You say you're neutral, but you help the um, Spartans, your kin. And the Melians say, no, no, we don't want anything. And and then the Athenians said, it's sorry. And then we had this wonderful exposition of what you're talking about. The Melians say, if you kill us and you profess to be democratic and humane, what's going to happen is that all of your empire is going to revolt in revulsion at your crudity because you're no different than basically a barbarian. And the Athenians ambassadors, of which maybe Alcibiades was one, answer, we wish that were true because in a world that would be very good. But the fact is we know human nature better than you do. And that is if we let you live, then you will go brag as soon as we go away that you were able to escape the wrath of Athens because it's weak. And when people see us weak, uh, they will start to revolt. 
And that's just the way it is. We didn't make the rules, we inherited. And then the and then the millions basically say, but you know, we have hope. And you know, at one time the Greeks were, you know, much less powerful than uh, Persians. And if we had this logic, we'd always quit when somebody seemed seemed more powerful. But we don't know what can happen because they hit, you know, they're alluding to the Persian Wars and that a small Greece defeated. And why don't we're, we're playing that role? And the obvious implication is the Athenians have become imperialistic Persians. And then they have this great line where they say hope dangerous comforter so if if we can't persuade you to put your uh faith in the nebulous away and look at the reality the data so to speak then you're going to be annihilated and that's what happens they annihilate them and they kill all the males above i think 18 or 16 and they enslave the women and children and they destroy the city and hand it over to their own people and that's one of the um, lessons in human uh, behavior that Thucydides tells. The other one that you mentioned earlier was the stasis in Corsaira in uh, 47 BC. Um, can you tell us about uh, what Thucydides says about the way that words change their meanings? Yes. Uh, violence becomes um, men- becomes manliness, prudence becomes cowardice, and so on. And, um, and also maybe a few words about the sort of Orwellian parallels in modern revolutions because uh, when i was rereading that i was very much um uh, thinking of the of the maoist uh, cultural revolution yes. and the way that words change their meaning in that well he he lists a series of words that we would consider sober judicious and moderate adjectives uh, in greek uh kind or careful or circumspect and he says as the tinge as the violence grew those were were seen increasingly as the words of the weak or the naive or people who were afraid to express the truth. And the more violent vocabulary came as a mark of admiration that the person who was going to kill or the person who was going to cut off a potential conspiracy before it, they were the, the smarter ones. And then he makes a stunning admission that when your societies get in crisis like this, the people who are intellectuals or thinkers or statesmen tend to be arrogant. They tend to think that they can always handle the mob. But the, I think the word he uses is the blunter wits. These are the sort of Joseph Stalins, the, the brawlers or the Maoists, who know exactly that when you get into a situation like this, you've got to kill. They, they will kill people and they don't care. Uh, and they're always going to be underestimated by the Kerenskys or the Shanghai Sheks who think that they can you know, that that they can deal with these people. You, man- you mentioned earlier um, about intellectual arrogance. Um, and isn't there an element of intellectual arrogance and also uh, national sh- uh, chauvinism in the uh, Sicilian expedition? The um, There's a sort of warning, but Thucydides is warning about the dangers of both of those, isn't he, with regard to Alcibiades and so on? I think so. I think, remember that Alcibiades cooks up this idea that in the in the calm of the peace, they can get advantage by not breaking the peace, but going and attacking the largest democracy in the Greek world as a democracy, 800 miles away. Sort of like in the middle of the Iraq war, we would have attacked India, a neutral that's democratic and big and distant. So they go over there, but they don't trust quite these cities, they being the Athenian assembly. So they say, you know what? There's this Lamachus guy, and he's got a he's not very bright, but he's dependable. And then there's Nicias, who's moral. 
and he's a wealthy aristocrat. So we'll put, it's a very, you know, it's just contrary to Napoleon's dictum, never divide command. So they have three commanders and they go there. And what he, what unfolds is that the brilliant aristocratic, um, enlightened military genius Alcibiades, his idea is to just, they go there and everything they've been told is a lie. There are no really allies there. This, this, this Sicily's not open for revolt. Um, their allies have no money. Uh, it was all a, a sham. So Alcibiades says, let's just go around the island and make a display of our power so we don't go back empty-handed, empty i.e. we'll be executed if we go back because we didn't do anything. And Nicias says, oh, you know, we can't do that. Let's just stay here and make a base. And, of course, every day you're there in Sicily, you're going to get weaker. But then Lamachus, the dull-witted one, says, no, just go straight right now to the capital at Syracuse and take it. And in retrospect, you can see that the so-called stupidest and lamest of the three had the best suggestion and the most sophisticated Alcibiades or the most uh, establishment um, of all Nicias had the worst advice. And then they end, the two of them end up destroying in different ways, destroying the expedition and Lamachus gets killed. And so it becomes kind of a tragedy, Sophoclean tragedy. Um, in uh, 2018, Graham Allison wrote a book um, called Destined for War. Uh, yes. Can China and America avoid Thucydides' trap? Several books obviously have been written since that with this phrase, Thucydidean trap, in the title or the subtitle. Firstly, do you think there is such a thing as a Thucydidean trap? And if so, can America and China avoid it? Because that's obviously what it's being used to uh, describe in our time. Well, that, that concept, was not new. There had been classicists who had fixated on this one word line, I should say, in Thucydides' history in book one, where he says that the greatest cause of the war was Spartan's fear of the Athenian empire, i.e. that was dynamic and growing and they were static. And so this was a the last chance for preemption. But that said, again, this is one of these cases where the summation is not supported by the evidence he adduces because he goes to great pains in the funeral oration and a series of exchanges among Corinthians and Spartans and Pericles' warnings about the war at the end of book one. In this sense, he said, they say, Sparta is a oligarchy. Athens is a democracy. Sparta is a land power. Athens is a sea power. Sparta has no money. It's it's got no reserves. It's parochial and rural. Athens is cosmopolitan and dynamic. Sparta is Doric. It's got an ethnic division with us. We are Ionic. So they give you so many fundamental fault lines, and there has been so many wars before. There was a first Peloponnesian War, for example, and there had been tensions before, going way back into the 470s, 460s, and then breaking out in war in the 450s. That It wasn't just that Sparta was afraid of Athenian power, but Sparta, I mean, Britain was afraid of American power. It was very clear that by 1865, the U.S. GDP was approximating, if not, had already passed Britain's. It had almost passed Germany's. And so the British had this huge empire, and they didn't know quite what to do with the Americans. And there was talk that maybe they would there would be a war or something, but there wasn't. And there wasn't a war because they had a lot more affinities and they had differences. There was a war with Germany and Britain because uh, there were these fundamental differences other than uh, Germany 
Britain wasn't just afraid that German, the German economy and the unification of Germany was threatening. It did. But Britain would have not gone to war preemptory on its own in the way the Kaiser did. So there were differences that Germany felt uh, were existential. So I don't, I don't, I never bought into that because I think there are all sorts of cases in history where a rising power does not cause a peremptory attack from an established power as if it's the last time you can change it. it that happens when there are so many other fundamental differences. And so his idea that we might have to stop Chinese, uh, you know, Chinese uh, dynamism before they take us over. That wouldn't occur if China was a democratic free market, a truly free market democratic people. It's happening because it's a communist thugocracy of 1.4 billion people that are regimented and it's got uh, this Silk Road initiative and things. So it's a different society than ours. And I think that's far more important than the relative uh, fluidity and fluctuations of power. Can we move on to uh, to Rome? Um, and there have been uh, no fewer than 76 reasons given by historians for the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, which ones do you think were the most important? I think two are, are, are the most important. The first is that you can make the argument by the 5th century, but even the 4th, not only are most of the emperors non-Italian, but the vast majority of the 70 million people in the Roman are non-Italian, which is fine. It's a multicultural, multiracial empire. But the problem is Caracalla tried to solve it in 212 by giving everybody who had feet on the ground inside Rome citizenship. But there are not enough people there's not a majority of Roman residents of the 70 million from, you know, the Persian Gulf to Gibraltar or from the Danube all the way to this to the Sahara. There's not enough people who have a commonality. They don't believe they are Roman first and German or Berber or Arab second. They believe that their national identity is, is coming to the fore. And how does that translate? It means if you're a, a Roman... Uh, legionnaire on uh, the banks of the Rhine, you probably are marrying somebody who's German, you may be half German yourself, and they ask you to go down to Egypt to suppress a revolt, you're not going to do it. They they say you're not supposed to be married, you will be married. If they say you should know Latin, you don't need to know Latin. So there was a breakdown, a fragmentation of culture. The second, I think, is was monetary, that there was a greater investment in, in um consumption than um, production and there was we know that there was an enormous inflation that the military uh budgets went up but also the consumptive budgets went up and there were getting to the point where and i don't know i don't quite I don't want to weigh in why that was true. There was a lot of people, if you were the great Marxist historian, Jeffrey Dayson Qua, the British uh, historian, he wrote a great book, The Class Struggle. He argued there was too many land that were not productive in the sense of the church owned millions of acres that was not being taxed and would not allow people to join the legions. I don't quite think that's right, but there were reasons why there was inflation and they were simply bankrupt. One thing to remember, Andrew, and I think this is really important. We find we. Th- this is kind of scary for a, a liberal 
Westerner, but there was a Eastern Empire by the fourth century that's Constantine's Constantinople on the old side of Byzantium. And when Rome fell in the 470s, finally collapsed. This alternative paradigm lasted for a thousand years, and we can't figure out why. Well, maybe it's geography. Well, the geography was even more dangerous. It lived in a more dangerous neighborhood. But uh, by the by the 520s, I mean, the Byzantine Romans had recovered half of the Roman Empire. They had built Hagia Sophia. They had the Justinian Law Code. And one of the reasons they did it, they insisted on a standard language Greek, and they had a, a a bifurcating Christianity, but it was orthodox throughout the Byzantine Empire. They didn't have the religious schisms that were in the left, and they had a pretty tough legal code that was uniform. But what I'm getting down is getting to is they became less liberal, but more patriotic, nationalistic, uniform, and united. And out of that idea, they lasted a thousand years. Um, there's an old uh, Monty Python line in uh, Life of Brian where the leader of the People's Front of Judea, played by John Cleese, complains, what have the Romans ever done for us? Uh, <laughs> and then it's uh, pointed out to him famously that they brought uh, roads, aqueducts, sanitation, irrigation, uh, medicine, education, wine, public baths, law and order and peace. Um, and uh, if one can assume that all of these public benefits wouldn't have arrived in Judea in the first century AD without the Romans... Does ancient history uh, provide an argument in favor of empire? Well, it certainly does. Not all empires, but it certainly does in the way of Rome, I think, in a way that the Ottoman or the Mongol Empire doesn't, because they had this ability to go into a province like Gaul, what would we call, I guess, in the vernacular, ancient France, and convince people who were losing their freedom and conquered, even though they took perhaps a million slaves out of it. But nevertheless, they, they had the ability to assimilate them and say, you know what, you can wear a purple toga, you can speak Latin, you can have your own assembly, and you can be a new, a novus homo and go to Rome and be successful. And so, you know, when you look at people that were very prominent, Plautus the playwright was a non-Roman, probably African-American of North Africa. And, uh, were people, Justinian came, he was not even Italian, and he, he came from the northern Balkans. And Hadrian, we had all these emperors that were from Spain. And so they had an ability to assimilate people, and they could only do that by viewing them as inherently as, as noble or equal, you know, as possible as a person could, given innate prejudices, as Italians. And for a while, it worked really well. And, uh, you know, everybody thought after these bankrupt, inbred Julio-Claudians that that would be the end, you know, the year of the four emperors in 69. Then you get these brilliant people like Vespasian and Titus and Nerva and Marcus Aurelius and Hadrian and Trajan and Antonius Pius, a hundred years, which Gibbon called great. And it's an ability to take the system and to expand it beyond and to give benefits for people who are not Italian and make them feel more Roman. And it worked for about 300 years. And when they could, do, they no longer could do that, then it broke apart. And that's, that has a lot of modern lessons, I think, for us. Um, Victor, what do you say uh, to the morons who argue that because Latin's a dead language that nobody speaks, uh, that it therefore oughtn't to be taught? Well, in the case of Latin or Greek, 
of all, uh, modern English and most Romance languages, they're highly inflected. Even English is. I mean, we you have a plural S or something. And to understand how a language works, if you really want to speak well or write well, you have to have some knowledge of how it works. And the best way I found, and I'm speaking of somebody taught Mexican-American and poor white kids, Southeast Asians at a sort of a trade school, Cal State Fresno, for 21 years, I found that Latin was absolutely ideal. And that's one thing. Number two, uh, it expands your vocabulary. And since by I mean, what I mean by that is once you understand Greek and Latin roots, compounds, suffixes, prefixes, then words become, and you can understand what the word really means. And that, that that's, uh, if you say democracy, democracy, but if you know what kratos means in demos, you see it's the, it's the power, not just the rule, the power of the people. Or if you say oligarchy, it's the rule of just a few people or plutocracy. And so you can just think of all these crossy words and it really enriches your vocabulary. And then more importantly, it creates a discipline that you try when you start to learn the languages and the larger literature and history. Knowledge is not just fuzzy out there, like a lot of kids will come in, philosophy, history. I don't know what it is, but it's it's finite. You say this is language. This is now you're going to go to literature, history, philosophy, and there's also these subcategories of rhetoric. And it, it's all finite science, math, and that's it. And so when you say the student says, well, I'm going to learn a new thing called psychology or gender studies or peace studies or environmental studies, you say, no, that's a subdivision of science or that's a subdivision of philosophy or that's anthropology is really a sort of history and science combined. And so it gives a student confidence against fads and trends. And uh, I found that I could literally take almost any student of any economic background or ethnic background. If I had that student for three or four years as a classics major, and I had a lot of them, I think we sent 50 of them to the Ivy League in professional schools from very impoverished conditions. My biggest problem was always that once a student graduated with classical languages, history, philosophy, that they encountered enormous uh, opposition, not from other students, but from faculty members. And this sounds a little preposterous, but you could take somebody who immigrated from Mexico, and if that student had two years of Latin, two years of Greek, two years of ancient history, and that student was in an ethnic studies or gender studies class and wrote and spoke the teacher resented that because they were better educated than the person with a PhD in sociology. We've been talking about tragedy. Um, that really is the definition of it. it uh, what an appalling situation to, yeah. to have. Well, I took it for 21 years and quit an afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> one last question. One last yeah. question, yeah. which I'm going to ask all of my, uh, all of my guests. Um, what's your favorite um, historical counterfactual? Your, your what if? Well, you know, everybody says I contributed to three of those by Robert Cowley. You know, what if? Yeah, I, what, I what? contributed to a yeah, couple I think of those. I remember, yeah. They're fun, I aren't they? Because you don't have to research them. Yeah, you know. <laughs> you know. Uh, I think if the Greeks had lost the Battle of Salamis, they wouldn't have been a Battle of Plataea, and they would have lost their freedom. And Ionia, we know, had been the richest, most dynamic early Greek uh, intellectual center and then it was taken over by autocracy and it became 
you know, backwater, Miletus, Ephesus, et cetera, Halicarnassus. I think the same thing would have happened to Greece. And with that, I'm not sure that uh, Rome or the later Western tradition would have had a birth, or at least when it did. So I think the Battle of Salmos, and it, they should have lost. They were outnumbered three to one. Um, so that was mine. One of the things I tried to do in Ripples of Battle was say, rather than uh, say what would have happened, what did happen in a battle or a major game that changed things. So I took things like the Battle of Delium or Shiloh and showed that that one hour, three hours, day or two changed art or literature or philosophy because of the people that were there. And so a lot of the things in Plato's dialogues or Plato's laws can trace to Socrates' heroic behavior at Delium or Euripides' supplements that mythical battle is really, I think, a blow-by-blow description of the Battle of Delium, etc. And art came out of Delium as well. So I think that these critical moments, because especially in war, because time is so compressed, they, they have ripples that go out for centuries and change things, sometimes negative, often negative, but not all, always. But... Uh, as far as counterfactual, I think the Battle of Salamis was really crucial. Victor Davis Hanson, thank you so much for a totally fascinating conversation. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Victor Davis Hanson. And please join me on my next show when I'll be discussing an entirely lighter topic, the history of the faux pas with the novelist and humorist Christopher Buckley. Best wishes till then. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.